0: Support for this podcast comes from Smart Water. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smart Water Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hey, folks. As many of you know, this week we launched my brand new podcast, Up Against the Mob. It's a six-episode series that takes listeners inside the world of prosecuting the Italian mafia, La Cosa Nostra. Today, here in this feed, we're sharing the very first episode, my conversation with former mobster-turned-cooperator Michael Visconti. To listen to future episodes, search for Up Against the Mob wherever you're listening and follow. Trust me, you won't want to miss these. And now, here's episode one, of Up Against the Mob. Before we start, just a heads up. As you might expect, there's some violence and adult language in here, so if you've got kids around, you may want to throw on some headphones first. Thanks. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, I'm Ellie Honig, and this is Up Against the Mob. There's nothing about me that any mobster would ever fear. I'm not big, five foot nine on a good day, slim build, no tattoos, never had a real fist fight, probably wouldn't fare very well. I got a little bit of a mouth, but I've never berated somebody or threatened to kill them, never held a gun. I'm not from the neighborhood, as the mobsters put it, unless you count the leafy suburbs of New Jersey as the neighborhood, which they don't. No, there's nothing about me that would ever scare a real-life made guy in any of New York City's five mob families, Gambino, Genovese, Lucchese, Bonanno, Colombo, together known as La Cosa Nostra. Yet somehow I ended up as chief of the organized crime unit for the most feared prosecutor's office in the world, the federal prosecutor in Manhattan, the Southern District of New York. And by the time I was done as a prosecutor, I had taken down over 100 mobsters. Bosses, consiglieres, capos, soldiers, hitmen, enforcers, hangers-on, and wannabes. This is one of the
1: largest single-day operations against the mafia in the FBI's history, both in terms of the number of defendants arrested and charged and the scope of the criminal activity that is alleged.
0: I charged, tried, and convicted gangsters for murder, Racketeering, robbery, extortion, guns, drugs, loan sharking, fraud, you name it. I took untouchable powerhouses off the streets and sent them to prison for decades, sometimes for life. So sure, I made mistakes, took my lumps, that's how it goes. But I won more than I lost. So no, no mobster would ever walk by me on the street and be afraid or probably even notice me. But by the end, my boss, some guy named Preet Bharara, would tell a newspaper that I was organized crime's worst nightmare. The Gotti family would call me derisively Hotshot Honig. I've been called worse. My name is Ellie Honig. I worked for 14 years as a federal and state prosecutor. This is the story of my career, taking on the mafia. In this season, I'll take you inside the mafia. There's no fiction here. This isn't the movies. This is real life from the people who lived it. This season, you'll hear from prosecutors who took on mobsters in the courtroom and a famous lawyer who defended them. You'll hear from FBI agents who went undercover, who hit the streets to infiltrate and take down the mob, and who took on the most dangerous, highest-stakes assignments. You'll hear from a journalist who has studied the psychology of the mafia and why we're so fascinated with mobsters. You'll hear from a guest who used to live the mob life himself before he turned against the mafia and helped us bring down his entire crew. And you'll hear from other mobsters in their own words on the streets when they had no idea they were being secretly recorded by the FBI or by their own fellow mobsters. Welcome to the world I used to watch on movies and TV, but never thought I'd actually be part of. Welcome to the story of my career as a mob prosecutor. This is is up against the mob. Here's one thing that most movies and TV shows about crime get wrong. In the real world, very few cases are solved by CSI-style laboratory magic, Blood spatters, DNA hits, hair fibers, psychological profiling, that kind of thing. That all makes for a nice, tidy half hour on TV. But it's almost never how it works in real life. The true lifeblood of real criminal prosecution, especially against the mob, is the cooperating witness. You already know the nicknames they use in the mob for these guys. Rats, snitches, stoolies, if you want to go way back in time. Never run on your friends and
2: always keep your mouth shut.
0: There's good reason why mobsters hate cooperators so much. Nobody can do as much damage as a cooperating witness can because they live the life themselves. We used to say to juries, sure, we'd love to call nurses and schoolteachers as witnesses to take you inside the mob, but they can't. Only a real mobster can do that. Over the years, I worked with dozens of cooperating witnesses. I got good at flipping guys. I convinced a lot of them to come over and join Team America. Not all the time, but enough. There are few things as exciting to a mob prosecutor as flipping a new cooperating witness. For me, it was like getting a gift all nicely wrapped up or opening a new pack of baseball cards as a kid. What am I going to get? What's inside here? And the best cooperators could open up a whole new world take you inside, tell you who's who, who's got what rackets, maybe even who killed who. And if the cooperator was really well-positioned and really had the goods, he could bring down an entire crew, an entire wing of a mob family, as you'll see with today's guest, Michael Visconti. I first met Michael when he was right on the cusp, right at a key turning point in his life. He was on the brink of becoming a made guy, formally initiated a full untouchable member with the Genovese crime family. Now let's be clear. Despite the theatrical name and the aura of old school Hollywood movie romance, there's nothing at all glamorous about the Genovese organized crime family. In reality, they're a group of essentially professional criminals, in some instances, killers. Throughout its history, the Genovese family has made untold billions by stealing from good, hard-working citizens. And they've committed dozens upon dozens of murders, sometimes of innocent victims, sometimes of their enemies, sometimes of their own members. And the Genovese family is crafty, ruthless. They play by their own rules and they're not afraid to break everyone else's. Perhaps the most infamous of the Genovese family's members was Vincenzo Giganti, the chin, the murderous boss who in the 1990s tried to beat federal charges by pretending to be incompetent and wandering around Manhattan in his pajamas. So Michael Visconti, well, he was a rising superstar, a first round pick if they held the mafia draft, an elite prospect. He had it all. He could handle himself on the streets and he knew how to make money, both on the legit side and the not so legit. His mob future was bright, but for the first time in his career, Michael had run into trouble with the law. So it was make or break time for Michael Visconti. Fight the case and take the likely prison sentence, or leave the Genovese family, join Team Fed, and try to save himself. Years after he made that life-changing decision, Michael and I sat down to talk about it like we never have before. Do you remember where, physically where, you and I first met with an FBI agent?
2: Yeah, we met in a diner in uh, <laughs> in New Jersey, and I think we, uh, we ate and... Uh, I don't remember what we ate, but uh, I got to meet you for the first time. Yeah,
0: exactly. It was Tops Diner in Newark, New Jersey. And I always remember uh, when you and John Lariah, the FBI agent, walked in and the server sort of knew exactly what was going on and and tucked us away a little bit in the back.
2: Yeah, I was on every newspaper a couple months prior to that. So I think they
0: knew exactly who I was. Visconti had been charged with extortion in federal court in New Jersey, and he was looking at serious jail time for the first time in his life. He had a big decision to make, cooperate against his fellow Genovese family mobsters, or fight the case and risk major prison time.
2: And that was a very, very, very tough, tough situation for me. And I do remember some of the topics that we talked about, and, and, and obviously
0: Topic A was was Angelo Prisco and uh, our relationship with him. This was the meeting where I first laid out for Visconti the nuts and bolts. If he wanted to cooperate, he'd have to tell me everything he knew about everybody he ever dealt with in the mob. And when I left the diner that day, I called up my supervisor and said, we've got a monster case right here. We're going to take down an entire wing of the Genovese family. So you mentioned Angelo Prisco. Tell us who Angelo Prisco was. Angelo was a,
2: uh, he was my captain on a personal level. He was like a a family member to me, actually. You know, that's what he was. He was a very, very respected person in the Genevieve Strife family.
0: During our investigation, before we arrested anybody and before I ever sat down at that diner with Visconti, the FBI managed to flip an informant inside Prisco's crew. Unknown to the other guys in the crew, Prisco, Visconti, and all the rest, that informant wore a secret recording device for months, during which he captured hours worth of candid, unguarded conversations about crimes and mob life. We ended up playing a bunch of these tapes later for trial juries, which we'll discuss in a bit. Fortunately, I was able to call up an old friend at the SDNY who sent me copies of some of the best of those recordings for this podcast. So now, Here's one of those recordings that our informant made where Angelo Prisco talks about his personal view of mob life. Remember, Prisco had no idea that the person he was talking to was secretly wearing a wire for the FBI. And
1: they expect full loyalty. of you being the boss, this life sucks. And it's like a catch-22. If you're the boss, you're gonna go to jail. This life ain't cracked up what
0: it's up to be. This was a common complaint that I'd hear from mobsters. The power is nice, but overall, as Angelo Prisco says here, the life is full of peril.
2: You know, his his mentor was uh was Mario Giganti. So he was a very strong, strong guy. He ran the Purple Game along with Danny Leo in Harlem, and they came up to the ranks together, and they more or less, you know. The Genovese crime family had a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors. What do you mean by that? I mean by the fact that they weren't John Gotti with a Rioni suit on smacking himself in the head, you know, telling everybody's the boss. <laughs> so, you know, they, they were, they were, you know, our guys had, had mothball
0: holes in their sweaters, but they had $50 million in cash in the apartment. Now, the Genovese and the Gambinos are two of the five New York City mob families. They've got their similarities. They're both about the same size, around 150 made guys, plus a few hundred more associates looking to get in. And they're involved in some of the same rackets. But there also are important stylistic differences. Angelo Prisco shared his feelings toward the rival Gambino family with our informant. I hate
1: them guys. I don't do nothing with Gambino. As soon as I hear them, my asshole goes like this. They think they, who the fuck they are. They think they think, the number one in the world, you know? Everybody else is a shit on their
0: shoe. The Gambinos tend to be flashy, flamboyant, arrogant. Think of John Gotti parading around for the paparazzi and making the cover of the New York City tabloids. It was as if the reputed mob boss wanted to savor as much freedom as possible, strolling with his entourage across a park toward the courthouse.
1: At one time, Gotti was such a national celebrity that when he went to trial for multiple murders... Someone played the theme from The Godfather while his supporters cheered.
0: But the Genovese family was different. We prosecutors and the FBI would jokingly refer to the Genovese family as the Ivy League of the mafia, meaning they were smart, they weren't flashy, they were secretive, kept a low profile, they made a lot of money, and they were tough to prosecute.
2: So that that's the difference between our crew and theirs. And they had power committees. They had panels of leaders. And you never knew really, even us as, you know, soldiers and associates didn't even really know exactly who was in control. Right. Um, even if you were part of the faction. So, you know, uh, Angelo Prisco was a very, very respected guy, tough guy, and, and, a, and a cold blood murderer. He was a murderer.
0: You said that Angelo was your captain. What does that mean in terms of the ranks? Well, he was in charge
2: of an area for for them, and uh starting in the Bronx and then northern New Jersey, you know they talk about uh different people in New Jersey who had power. A lot of power always sat in Jersey. I'm talking about from not the beginning but the fifties. A lot of the power players were in Jersey, and that's where they were
0: focusing on Prisco, so you talked about he was an old school guy a powerful guy in the Genovese family and and fair to say you were really his his right hand i mean you were the guy he he went to most within the crew is that fair to say yes yes how many guys would you say were the core angelo prisco new jersey based crew
2: probably 15 or so guys that were really his core his core guys and he had some people in um in brooklyn and in the bronx Yeah, at least 15. Strong,
0: strong guys. And you mentioned that Angelo had to stay in New Jersey at this point. Why was that?
2: Because Angelo took a rap in the late 90s and pled out to arson and got sentenced to 12 years and was released by the um,
0: parole board early. Parole is a tricky thing for a mobster like Prisco. It means he's not in jail, but he's still under court supervision, and he has to obey certain rules. And if he messes up, he can get thrown right back in. One of Prisco's parole conditions was that he could not leave the physical boundaries of New Jersey. Prisco talked to our informant about his frustration at being limited while on parole.
1: I got three years parole again. They put you back to day one. I don't know how they work with the state, you know? But they, or, or you got to go in and you got to do the time you owe them. I don't know how it works, State. but I'm so fucking close to less than a year. I don't want to fuck up. It's when you got guys around you that take care of things. But I'm not doing that. You know, it's not the same as a front page,
0: Even while he was on parole, Prisco still kept up his criminal rackets as best he could. In one memorable case, he got involved in a shakedown of the famous action movie star Steven Seagal.
2: I call these positions that were these situations the perfect storm. We got reached out to by Bobby Debrino, who was a in the movie business and ex police officer and cousin of Angelo Prescos. And he was in uh, LA. And the Gambinos were shaking down Steven Seagal for $250,000 a movie.
0: Steven Seagal, the After. actor, karate guy with the karate hair. Guy, yeah. Yeah. The
2: ponytail. Yeah. Him.
0: And the Gambino family is shaking Steven Seagal down. To put it into
2: civilian terminology, they were asking him for money on movies that he made.
0: So that was happening. In one recording made by the informant, we got lucky. We hit a prosecutor's jackpot. We caught Prisco on tape talking bluntly about the shakedown of Steven Seagal. But
1: they let me go and then they were able to put me back because of that Steven Seagal. And when it happened, Chip, I told them, Listen, you're pushing this guy to the wall. I mean, he's a fucking actor. He's a Jewish actor. You know, you, you, you He's you Jewish? Yeah. I didn't know that. A he's a Jewish I didn't even think actor, about that. You know? Son of a bitch. He's not a fucking tough guy. They sent word back to me. We'll do whatever we want with him. He's a piece cheese we'll cut him up anyway. That's <laughs> okay. He came to see me, and said, Stephen, I can't help you. Then when I come out, I can help you, know, right? So he ratted. Now, once he ratted, Oh, their lawyers came. One guy named Mary Bronson. You know, you heard him, right? He's a Jersey lawyer. Hackinson. Yeah. He comes to see me. I have an attorney visit. So I thought it was my attorney. But I you know him. I said, yeah, Larry. Yeah, what's up? He said, you know who sent me here, didn't you? I says, who? Oh. He said, well, I can't tell you. You can't tell me? I grabbed him by his throat. And I twisted his tie. with green purple. <laughs> I said, you can't tell me, you motherfucker, like I got something." you want to come and talk to me, you don't tell this. And I twisted his fucking tie.
0: So here we have a real mobster, Angelo Prisco, in his own words, describing to his driver, who of course Prisco had no idea was wearing a wire, blow by blow, how he shook down Steven Seagal and even how he choked Seagal's lawyer to drive the message home. So Angelo gets out, he's got this crew, Angelo cannot physically leave New Jersey. Correct. So tell us, where would you guys, where was the main sort of regular meeting place with, with you, with this crew?
2: Uh, Glenrock. We, we all became, uh, bowlers. So we joined, we joined a bowling league. That was really good. So we, we used to bowl. I don't know what night of the week it was. And it was very close shot for guys to come from New York to a bowling alley. As you know, a lot of that audio that you guys taped wasn't uh, too clear at the bowling alley.
0: I mean, I- I'll complain about this all day, but we had a guy wearing a wire in your bowling alley. And it was just conversation, conversation, p- pins explode. Conversation, conversation, pins explode. Um, so did you do that on purpose? Did you guys pick a bowling alley to be- just in case? No, we weren't. He wasn't that smart, Angelo, I don't think. <laughs> he liked the bowl. You know what, got, what was funny
2: about this is I'm a very competitive guy. Yeah, and uh, ended up bowling a, a two ninety eight or two ninety nine or something. I, I actually got very good at this sport, so it was it was funny because they all sucked, and uh, <laughs> you know I got a, I got a lot of stories from that one too. I you know one time we were bowling against a team, and uh, Angelo had some uh, underlying um, you know problems medically. So he, he was a diabetic and, you know, he didn't take care of himself. He ate the wrong stuff. He was overweight. And he would bowl. And he was a left-handed bowler. Not that it means anything. But he always sat on a chair backwards, you know. So he always leaned his torso and elbows on the back of the chair. So he was doing that. And we were bowling against another team. The guy was trying to get around him and told Angelo, Hey, bro, sit right or move. Oh, boy. And you know, we all reacted pretty quickly. And the guy shit his pants, I mean, he didn't, they didn't know, they had no idea, you know? And, and and obviously they knew afterwards, They probably can't believe they escaped that one. but It was funny stories like that. A lot of people that worked at the bowling alley knew because of the, of the people that would come there. I mean, we had everybody coming there from Pepe Scala, you know, Robert Milano, I mean, uh, Fat Jolly Cesaro, everybody came there, you know what I mean? So they all knew. You know, even even uh, Mike the Nose, uh, Vinny Gorgeous, they they were all there.
0: I mean, these are powerful guys. These are Vinny Gorgeous was a was a boss, and they would they would drive into Jersey,
2: yeah, it's to see me. I was this conduit because when we were taking care of the San Gennaro feast, I was the bag man for uh, for the Genovese tribe family. So I was, you know, helping lay out the garbage with Vinny and. And even Mike Deneau's, Mike's the acting boss now. So, you know, but these were the guys that we were with every day. You know who was on the bowling team. Tell me, give me the lineup here. Okay, so it was me and Ange, Rocky, Eddie, Cobb. It reads like our indictment. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> we ended up indicting the entire bowling team and more. Now, Rocky was a key figure. His real name was John Melacharik, but everyone called him Rocky. He was short and scrappy. Rocky and Visconti were Prisco's right and left hand, his top two guys. They worked together a lot, but they also had a bit of a rivalry. So yeah, that was the, that was our bowling team. We were the best dressed bowlers. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. Uh, did, <laughs> were you good? Like, would you were you good in the standings? Did you win your matches? Yeah, we won some some stuff. We did pretty good.
2: You know what I mean? We 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 did good. It was it was. Uh, Listen, if
0: you're rolling high two hundreds,
2: that's that's a that's a good start. They knew, you know, and obviously you knew I always made a lot of money. So I, you know, when I wanted, I don't want to use anybody's equipment. So like the first night I got to get, and the guy says, well, you can't just buy a ball, You have to have I said, How much is a ball? He said, like 130. And then to drill it's 20. And I think I gave him like 400 bucks. I said, can you do it right now? And the guy was like, yeah, I, got, I can do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know? So, kind of. I mean, it was, they, they took care of us over there because they, they were, we were just different, I guess, than the average bowlers.
0: When he was on the streets, Visconti was the Genovese family's dream. He definitely was tough. And most importantly, he was a moneymaker. Visconti even came from a good family background and he had an innate understanding of business. I don't know. I was different. I was different. So how did this happen though? I mean, you you come from this. And when you're talking about your family now, you're talking about your your actual family, your father, your brothers. Yes. and, And none of them had anything to do with the mob. And a lot of guys, by the way, Michael, who I... Ended up dealing with his cooperators. Their father was a maid guy. Their uncle was a maid guy. Their brother. I mean, you're the only one in your family who had anything to do with these mob guys. So how did that happen in your life?
2: I I, I had an attraction to that, I guess. I don't know what it was. And, you know, I have a lot of things, too, in my own life, you know, that that I dealt with. You know, looking at me physically, speaking to me, you, you may make your own assumptions on who I am and what I am, whether it's a good vocabulary, pretty big guy, well built, whatever it is. But I as a kid didn't see myself like that. Even though I was an outstanding athlete, I struggled in school and didn't find out till later on I had dyslexia and, you know, went through that, got got over it, got through it, you know, and trained myself how to how to really train my my, my eyes and my brain how to pick things up and, and do things differently than, than someone else. But through those times, my self-esteem wasn't as what it appeared to be. So I was an overachiever, approver, and I, I wasn't one to be challenged. So going through that, if I felt challenged, my defense was to, to, to react
0: physically. Who was your first conduit into this world? Where I lived, the Colombo family had a compound.
2: And that's where Joe Senior died after he was shot in the head in Columbus. But I knew his kids as well.
0: And where where was this? Just geographically, Mike. That's
2: Washingtonville.
0: So north of the city, north of New York City.
2: Correct, north of New York City. Uh, the Colombo set a farm, and uh, Joe Senior raised his uh, five kids there.
0: You mean the Colombo? The Colombos of the Colombo family had an actual farm. It wasn't a working farm. It okay. was more of a
2: you know. I think they raced Cadillacs, so <laughs> you know they were there, and they had the the closest. The youngest son was the closest to me in age, which he's older than me. Um, and then you had Joe Jr., Anthony, and you know on and on. I have a daughter too. So for some reason, Joey always had like a bit of a problem with me. I don't know what it was. Whether he was jealous of me that, that I was a good business guy, maybe a girl liked me that liked him. I don't know. But he, he postured to me a few times, and I went into the attack mode. because I didn't give a shit who you were. And shocked shot them. And then I had a friend of mine that I grew up with that was friends with Angelo. And Angelo always wanted to meet me. And I didn't want to meet. I didn't want to really know anybody. Angelo Prisco. Correct. So finally, I went down there to put it on record that I threatened to beat the shit out of Joey Colombo Jr., and, you know, Angelo says, uh, did, did you put hands on him? I said, no. You know, I verbally threatened him. I told him if he comes around me again, I will completely crack his skull open. And Angelo said, uh, come meet me for dinner. And from that day on, I mean, I was with that guy every single
0: day until we were indicted. So, So just to be clear, so you basically threatened to... Hurt the son of a very powerful member of the Colombo family, you knew enough that you had to go get some protection. And so you went and and laid this out in front of Angela. And, and that's how you ended up around or on record with Angelo Prisco. Yes. What was the relationship like between you and Angelo? And he was, what I'm guessing, 20 years older than you, 15, 20 years older than you. I mean, how did you look at him at that time?
2: He was a very funny guy, very charismatic, obviously a tough man. And I just, you know, we just, you know, it happens in life. You just, you you really hit it off with somebody to the point where if Angelo introduced me to somebody that wasn't in the family, he would say, this is my son. You know, he always introduced me as his kid or his his boy or his guy, you know, but it was always my son. You know, you just said I never had all this other
0: stuff. So at the time when you were on the streets, with Angelo. Were you all in? I mean, did, did, did you love it? Did you love the lifestyle or did you find it to be exhausting and stressful? Like what was your state of mind?
2: Both, uh, Ellie, both. Um, yes, yes. I loved it. I loved, uh, loved all of it. You know, I loved the, the whole meeting with the guys, laughing, not waiting online, line, parking on sidewalks, all that shit. I mean, you, you just, if you look at the old tapes of, uh, Donnie Brasco, and Joe Pistone will tell you, he even fell into it. That's a trained FBI agent. He fell into the same. It's hard not to. It's really hard not to. Did it become monotonous and time-wasting? Yes, because I wasn't a time-waster. I wasn't a hanger atter I mean, I I like to get it done and be successful. And there's only a very small handful that are successful.
0: Very true. A lot of people, I think, have this notion of the Gaudis or or even the Angelo Priscos, but but as you know, Michael, there's dozens of uh, sort of wannabes and hangers on and guys scrapping for the smallest scores out there. Oh yeah, they're, they're just ridiculous, ridiculous. You had a couple of them in your crew. Yeah, I did. I had
2: unsuccessful people around me every day, every day.
0: What types of things would you do? What types of crimes were you involved in with Angelo and the crew? Extortion. Home invasions, you know, whatever, wherever there was something
2: that could be good, it got ran by us or talked about or people did, other than, you know, drug dealing. Right. Why not? Because it was, it was look, you know, Angela was a drug dealer. So was Danny Lugo. You know, so was, so was Vinnie uh, Gorgeous. Matter of fact, Vinnie Gorgeous was partners with uh, Angela at one point. But uh, came time in about 77 when Mary Giganti told him to, you know, to back off because books are opening up and you're gonna get strained out, and he
0: did. What you're talking about here is, is the mob, quote unquote, rule against dealing in drugs, right? That's Correct. one of the things you're not, but but of course, as you're telling us, even the, the most powerful guys break that rule. Listen,
2: two of the cardinal rules is you don't deal drugs. And you don't, you don't screw around with anybody's girl or wife. And I can tell you this, I, I know for a fact that Angelo was guilty of both. <laughs> but he, he was that, that jerk. You know, you just don't do that. And what it does and why the rule was set, and it was set back probably by you know Charlie Luciano, you know, it just causes too much animosity and and problems. This is dating back and let me tell you something. Our forefathers were drug dealers. I mean, Charlie Luciano was a was a was a pimp, you know. The drug of the time was alcohol. Of course, he, he did that. Vito Genovese was the, one of the biggest heroin dealers in the world. You know what I mean? This is what he did. So it's crazy. But I think that the seriousness came down when the laws changed with Reagan and uh our mayor in New York, what was his name? Koch. Koch really, really sharpened the laws up. And then he had Giuliani in there. And it really became serious, the amount of time that could be given to somebody for a drug offense. So instead of having somebody flip, they, they didn't want you to do it.
0: Yeah. So it became, it was bad business. And I will tell you, Michael, I, I had other cases against other families where we would charge a guy with eight crimes and and the eighth most significant crime was dealing in drugs, low quantity, and they would not want to plead to that. They'd be willing to plead to the higher stuff, but not the drug crime because they didn't want to admit it. But as you say, it's it, it, it's total hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy. Let me ask you a little bit. You mentioned extortions. I mean, how how does that work basically? What kind what kind of people was the Genovese family involved in shaking down? Oh my god, could be anything. You
2: know, it could be if there was construction, it was construction. If it was uh, garbage, it was garbage. If it was um, obviously the lighting thing, the lighting contract for the feasts.
0: Was was all controlled. That's the first thing that you got arrested for, shaking down a lighting contractor. Correct. The real way uh, guys get shaken down by the mob is not necessarily somebody walking into the corner store saying, I want a bag of cash or I'll break your knees. You phrase it as a business proposition, right? Where we're going to be partners.
2: Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, it's basically, that's it. It's, it's, I'll call it paying a toll. If you're going to come across our road,
0: you're going to pay. It's a mob tax. Yes, it's a tax. And Michael, you mentioned home invasions. Now, tell I mean, obviously, you guys weren't sending people to break into random homes. Who who was the crew targeting for those kinds of home invasions?
2: People that had cash, dirty people, drug dealers, you know, people that were in cash businesses and and such.
0: Here's a secret recording that our informant made of Michael Visconti back when Visconti was still on the streets, before he got arrested and decided to flip, talking about one of those robberies.
2: And He's always got 30, 40 pounds there. He's got fifty, hundred thousand cash. And he got bottles and bottles and bottles of pills.
0: Just going for the cash, obviously. Well, i am taking everything. Michael, as you've sort of alluded to and talked about, I mean, look, you're, you're a big, strong guy. You know, were there times when you assaulted people, committed violence, for yes. Angelo, for the crew? Yes. Bunch of times? I mean, once or twice? No. I mean, for for Rocky, you know. just Rocky was was another guy in the crew, right? Yeah, Rocky
2: was a guy. He was a very respected guy. But he was, he had the the Napoleon syndrome, Rocky. But Rocky had, you know, Joker Pokers and, you know, little businesses like that. And and he had a guy that owed him money that was with the Columbo's. So we were doing business in Brooklyn with the Russians one day. And he said, man, a guy owes me. You know, 20 grand, whatever it was. I said, Who's he with? He says, oh, He's with the Columbos. I said, Really? He, so he's not going to pay you? I didn't know that he had paid 140 or 50 already. It wasn't like he owed him 20. He had already
0: paid a lot of money. Which makes a difference in the mob It makes yeah.
2: a huge difference. Huge difference. So he's telling me that the Colombos said, It's done. Anthony Colombo or somebody said, It's over. Done. Leave him alone. But he didn't tell me the other part that he had already paid 130 or 40000 So I said, where is he? He said, he's got a, he's got a furniture store right around the corner. Of Brooklyn. I said, well, go over there. So he came out, and he started with the Colombo shit. And I open-handedly knocked him into a bank window and knocked him down. But when I did it, I swung kind of wide with my open hand, and I hit Rocky's nose and broke it. And it was blood all over the <laughs> sidewalk. So I hit Rocky and hit him. That was a funny story. But yeah, stuff like that, yeah, absolutely. I, I I had no
0: problem, you know, doing that. You, you, you know, had no problem, like you said, with an assault, an act of violence. No. Before Visconti flipped when he was still out on the streets, our informant caught him on tape talking about his own enforcement methods.
1: Give me a favor, just stay the fuck
2: away from these fucking police. This is your last one come back and you're never going to see your
0: family again. I'm you. if he doesn't do it now. I got to go back and beat him up. See, I would normally I'd go in there and flip the desk. You know what I mean? I swear to God. Angelo Prisco, we ended up trying, we prosecutors ended up trying, convicting Angelo for a murder that happened many years before you were ever involved. You had It was a 1992 murder um, that you were not involved in. But Angelo, we we proved to a jury, was a killer, was capable of giving an order to murder if angelo had asked you to had instructed you to to kill somebody would you have done it yes you would have yep no hesitation yeah
2: no. why looking back why now i can look back and say why in that in that time frame because i was i was in a different state of mind i listen if if you're raised with sheep you're a sheep if you're raised with bulls you're a bull when you when you start hanging around with Jerk offs. Okay, you start losing your sense of all senses. You, you, so your morals are the first thing that goes, and it's hard to hold on to them. And I said it that sentence. Like, I'm the same physical human being. I'm the same physical your you know person, your honor. I said, but but I, I I found my morals that I lost, and and it's the truth. If Angelo Prisk, if you if if somebody came up to me today and asked me to punch somebody in the face, <laughs> I'd laugh at them. If it came to my children being hurt, I'd act like any other father. Of course. Um, but in, in, this, in that state of mind, the question
0: that you asked me then, yes, I would have. I think that's a really honest answer, yeah. Yes,
2: and it's multiple reasons, Ellie. Multiple reasons. You gotta understand something. There's
0: a good chance you could get killed if you say no. Right, according to mob protocols, right? 100%. If an Angelo Prisco says to you, I need you to do a piece of work, as they say. That's not optional, right? It's not optional, I'll tell you why. Angelo always used the
2: terminology, if you step on a cockroach, you gonna tell your friends about that? The answer is no. It's twofold. Are you gonna tell somebody there's a cockroach in your house? No. And is it a big deal to tell somebody you killed a cockroach? No. So you're not gonna tell them.
0: At one point, our informant had to drive Prisco a couple hours from North Jersey down to Atlantic City. During that long car ride, Prisco opened up about mob life, including his theory on how to approach a murder. Prisco had no idea he was being recorded.
1: The old time, somebody's got to go and become a cockroach. What do you do with a cockroach? You kill the cockroach, you step on the cockroach, you go about your business. You don't go pulling people up and say, hey, yeah, I stepped on a cockroach last night, you know? That's the to I mean, I didn't make it that way, but that's the way it is. That's how we looked at it.
2: Exactly. So if they're asking me and I say no and it gets done, I know about it just like the other person knows about
0: it. Yeah. And you're a risk now.
2: I'm going to get killed. So that's part of my answer why yes.
0: This sort of brings us almost to the point where we were talking about where you and I first met with the diner. A little background here. Visconti was first charged in the federal district of New Jersey along with Angelo Prisco and one other person for one count of extortion. And that's when Visconti first decided he might be interested in cooperating. What made you decide to cooperate because it's such an important and difficult decision that any person may have to make.
2: Okay. When I was picked up, I told Christine that morning, your wife, that my wife, I'll I'll do my best, but I'm probably going to at least do five years. And I'm okay. I was okay at that time period for that to happen. me. When they picked us up, there was three people picked up in New Jersey. And the three of us that got picked up was Angelo Prisco, John Capelli, and myself. So the feds took us into private rooms. Okay. And then put us into a holding pen, which normally does not happen. So we spent about 35 to 40 minutes together before they realized that they needed to be separated. And in that 35 minutes, Angelo, of course, gave you the ride up. You know, we're going to trial. Nobody pleads out. Nobody fucking pleads out. Blah, 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 blah. So you're going in with that mindset that we're going to go to trial. And let's see how we can do. And of course, everyone knows that at the 11th hour, usually you cut a deal. Right. (laughs) Three is and you do whatever. So I, I don't know. I'm in, I'm in day three or day four and they have him in one facility, me in another, John Capelli makes bail. And I either pick up a paper or call home, and they tell me that Angelo cut a deal. I said, Al- "Already? No way." Yeah, he cut a five-year deal. I said, the "Fucking fat old fuck! How can he do that to me? I just had a child. Now, you know, he, he he more or less cut a fucking deal, but he wasn't in any of the places. He didn't, you know. I, I'm I'm fucked. I mean, I'm I I have a lot more at stake than he does, and God only knows." what else they have. So I'm getting more and more mad as the day goes on. The night goes on. The next day comes and I'm really fucking pissed off. And I'm, besides that, I have a newborn child home and it's, it's, everything's a mess. And it all happened very quickly. New York state sees my accounts on a gambling charge. I had no access to money and the cash that I had, Christine couldn't get. And it was a mess. So I called her up, and I said, call the number
0: and tell them I want to talk to them. So you tried first to cooperate with federal prosecutors in New Jersey. So tell us how that went. It went like a, it was a, it was a, it was a shit show. Visconti had information about a murder that had happened years before in New York in 1992. Visconti had nothing to do with it. It was well before his mob days, but he picked up some internal mob chatter about Prisco's involvement in that hit. And Visconti had information on plenty of other crimes that he had personally committed with and for Prisco and others. The problem was the New Jersey prosecutor on his case just wasn't interested in cooperation. He mostly wanted to wrap up the case and call it a day. But the FBI agent on the case was not satisfied with that. So the agent picked up the phone and he called me, at the SDNY? You know, you got the Rolls Royce, you know, Southern district is the New York Yankees. I mean, come on. It, it is, it's
2: not Brooklyn. It's not any, it's, it's a Southern district. It's you, you go there you better have a lot of ammunition and a lot of money to defend yourself. So it's not like that in New Jersey. And the people that were involved in New Jersey, even going into this, I knew what I was up against. You know, I, I either I would win or I would cut a you know, a, a sweet deal, maximum being five years, and probably, you know, something less. I was my, I'd never been, I never had convictions before. So I, I would have been out, you know, but I don't know what, when Angelo went in, what was going to happen? You know, they, they didn't have their, their ducks aligned or, or the ammunition to fight this case the right way. And in hindsight, it was the grace of God that, that you picked the case up because of the efforts of the agent, you know, trying to really pursue this. And thank God that the homicide was in New York. And there was a lot of lot of key components that, that made this happen. During one of the briefings, I saw the agent's eyes lit up when I talked about the body being moved in the man. And he looked at his partner and we kept going.
0: And it came back a year later. Those questions. You had a little bit of a difficult calculus just straight up math to do which is you were only charged in jersey with the one crime the extortion which had a which you're looking at maybe 5 years like you said and i'm sure that i explained to you that if you're going to cooperate with us you're going to have to own up to all this other stuff more serious crimes but if you do it right you get a letter from us a sentencing letter from us so tell me about that calculation in sort of in your head how did you work through that
2: it was a very, very, very scary situation. It was scary. I saw nothing developing in Jersey other than looking at pictures and identifying people. There was nothing, nothing, nothing. And I saw what road I was going down. So when I got the call from the agent that to meet with you, I asked who you were. He told me. And then I started doing the math. Like, what did he need to talk to me about? It. And I knew at that point, but really what saved the day You told me, look, it's this, this, and this. I know how they are there. I have respect for them. They are the federal government. But you're going down a road with with a dead end. And I'm not promising anything, but, you know, here's here's where we are. And I was going through a lot of emotions, obviously, because I, I loved some of the people that I was involved with but I had to make a choice and I had to make it quickly. And, you know, it it, it was torturous. It was really, really torturous. So um, it's almost hard to put into words the emotions and feelings that I went uh, along with my family. So, you know, it, it, it 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 was tough. And I had, you know, when you make a decision like that in life, I don't care what anybody says from the witness side. It's a scary, scary thing, but you have to commit to come clean because if you don't, you and I both know what happens. These witnesses may not know that, but me sitting in that room, that seven inch wall, quiet room, I call it the safe that we would go into and we would talk. I don't know who else you're talking to. And those that are listening, believe me, you're not the only one they're talking to. So either come clean or go home, or go to jail. As a person sitting there, they, they, a part of them don't believe it. Either you're going to do it or you're not. It's almost like, you know, either you're going to jump in a pool or you're not going to jump in a pool. That's it.
0: Right. You don't want to get caught halfway.
2: No, it's a waste of time.
0: And one of the things I explained to you and, and other cooperators is exactly what you said. If you're gonna, if, if we're gonna play games here, don't bother because we're gonna know a lot more other things. Eventually, we at the Southern District of New York used Visconti's information to do a major indictment. We took down Angelo Prisco, Rocky, and the whole crew. The day we went out and, and made these arrests and brought these guys in, how did you feel about that that day, knowing that guys who you used to be friends with? spend your days with your nights with were now arrested, indicted in the SDNY in large part because of your information.
2: How do I feel? I felt like shit in the beginning because, because I did, I I just did. I, you know, if they're listening or not listening, I mean, the fear of me talking made them plead out. Okay. And you and I both know that, you know, but when it came to Angelo Prisco and what I felt he did to me, I don't regret any of that bullshit because I'm not going to ever let anybody take advantage of me or my family. So this is, this is
0: you know, either be eaten and they got eaten. I didn't. You testified at two different trials where I was the lead prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. The first was a sort of minor player, Angelo Nicosia.
2: You, you know I wanted to kill him, right? No. What do you mean? Literally? Literally. Do tell. Okay. So he's a punk, zip, and 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 the terminology zip is a, a guinea from Italy. So he was an asshole, and it's pretty ironic. I'll get into it after this. But he was a crybaby jerk that knew Nikki from the docks, and always had a problem. Always, yeah, This guy owes me money. This guy, you know, and always wanted to be a tough guy. And we were out one afternoon for something with Rocky, and I said to, something to him, he literally, like, almost got in my face. Oh,
0: yes, I do remember this.
2: So I took a fork, and I was going to put it in his neck, and Rocky got between us, and I told Rocky, I told, I, I that day told him, I said, I'm going to kill him. So, just understand, he's going to die. That's you, how I you did tell him. us this. That's right. Yes. So. He was going to die. No doubt about it. I was going to fucking kill him. And everybody got busted. Angelo told me to back off. I told Angelo no. And he goes, do what you got to do. And that was it. Rocky tried to be the mediator in the situation because he was earning money off of Angelo collecting these little debts, little Italy and shit like that. And that was his, his the reason why he wanted to save him. But moving forward. The little bit of shit that I had on this zip, I cherished that day that I stood on a stand because it was better than, I couldn't physically harm him. Okay, and by the way, people that are listening, it was him, his wife, and his mother at the trial,
0: okay? Prisco's was standing room only. Yeah, big difference in the trials. Big difference in the trials. Angelo Nicosia was a fairly low-level player in Prisco's crew. We charge him with extorting a New Jersey contractor for about $50,000. At one point, Nicosia and others in the crew smashed a half-full glass coffee pot over the head of the contractor's business partner. Another time, they threatened to cut off the contractor's fingers. Nicosia wouldn't take a plea, so we took him to trial. Visconti testified at that trial about the extortion, and the jury came back with a guilty verdict. The judge sent Nicosia away for just under four years. But for Visconti, that trial was just a warm-up. The main event was the trial of Angelo Prisco. The main event was the Angelo Prisco trial. And that, I'm sure, was a very different experience for you. I mean, what was it like to walk into a packed courtroom, get into the witness box, take that oath, and point out, Angelo, I mean, we had you, we always do this physically, where we would say, where do you, do you recognize Angelo Prisco here in the courtroom? And you have to say, he's right there. In the whatever colored suit, what what was that like for you?
2: It was terrible. It was uh, it was terrible because I did have love for Angelo and his and his family, you know. So it, it was truly a difficult, difficult time, you know. But you know, when I when I say the perfect storm, I look to you for support when I looked out into the crowd, and we did have a good judge. You know, I, I didn't do anything staged. I I looked into the eyes of the the jury, I looked into the crowd, and I didn't waver, you know, and I'm not saying this like I'm I'm a badass, but I guess I am a badass because it was a very, very difficult time because other people could have cracked. I did take out a picture of my kids and I I put it in front of me and I had an ear infection and flying in didn't help it. So I was kind of sick. That day. And you know, what what people don't understand is, you know, you this is not TV. You know, you're not you're not whisked in from a back room with a black hoodie on and then, you know, sworn in and, and you testified and then you're whisked out. I walked up the center aisle of a courthouse that was standing room only.
0: My memory of that cross examination is is the lawyer didn't lay a glove on you. And I think the reason for that was because you, as much as only the top sort of tier of cooperators, understood what you were saying earlier, that you just have to own up to everything. And if you've got nothing to hide, then I'm gonna bring it all out with you on your main your direct exam. And there's there's no secrets. And so it makes you sort of in a in an odd way, while you're up there admitting all the things you've done, you're kind of invulnerable. Because as we tell the jury, it's not about whether you Love this guy. It's about whether you believe it.
2: You're right. You're exactly right. And I can remember a lot of the cross examination questions vividly, even after all these years. But I can remember one part where he, again, I used to t- say he took this out of a YouTube video from Cutler, you know, and he slammed his Bruce Cutler is the, the
0: famous, the famous Gotti. Topic. Gotti
2: attorney, yeah, that, that thinks he's a gangster. So, yeah. you know, he slammed. He, he had the he had the double breasted suit on this guy, and he was all done up. And he slammed his fist on the podium, and he says, "Isn't it true, Mister Visconti, that you're only up here to save your own ass?" And I said, "Yes, I am." Like what? Next question, you know? And he didn't know what to fucking say. So, you know, the bottom line is, it, it was difficult. Yes, to look at Angelo. and he stared me down, and I looked at my kids, and I stared at him.
0: And so, and so, we're clear. Angelo was convicted on. All the counts in that trial got life and and died a few years ago in prison.
2: He's dead. It's a shame he died in jail. But uh, I'm here. Did I win? I guess so. I mean, if we're, we're trying to do W's and L's, I guess I won. I was not going to allow somebody to screw me over and lie to me. And the bottom line here is I would have done five years all the paper underneath my head laying on a concrete floor if he did the right thing but it all works out for the best Ellie because eventually I would have gotten busted and went to jail or dead so you know I got to, to raise my, my kids the best way I could and they're all successful intelligent young people and uh, I didn't miss anything he did so that's a win
0: Now, after Visconti testified, he came to a moment of truth: his sentencing, and that sentencing was held back in New Jersey because of the procedural way these cases go. Tell me what you remember about that day and and your sentencing, and, and I mean, how nervous were you? you? You were looking at. We had written you a a, a very strong, what we call a five K letter, a cooperator letter to the judge, but look. You could have gotten sentenced to a long time right there that day. How did that feel that day?
2: Up until the reading of the sentencing, I was really, really scared. Because at that point, you're going to jail as a, as a, as a witness. So you're going to do your, your time in, you know, in confinement. It's a really, really tough thing. There was quite a few people there. There was some sentencing before mine um, that didn't go so well. And, and Ellie had a staff from New York and, and the agents were there. Um, some of my family members, my wife, and we were all nervous. It made it easier. It made it much easier. It made it, it was, it was a comforting feeling, although it was scary. I'm not going to say it wasn't, but it was a comforting feeling. And people that are listening to this podcast, listen to me. I'm not saying I'm the greatest thing in the world. But I do have a great memory, and I'm not rattled too easily. And when you're prepped by people as good as Ellie and Lisa, I was ready for battle.
0: Lisa Zornberg was another SDNY prosecutor. She was my partner in this trial and many others. Lisa's about five foot nothing. But believe me, she terrified these mobsters. You'll hear from Lisa in a future episode. And with that being said, the average letter written could be a you know,
2: paragraph, a couple sentences. Mine was a novel. Ellie and Lisa wrote a novel for me, and I have it. I read it very often, and it's quite compelling, and it, it 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 touches my heart every single time that I look at it.
0: More more than you'll ever know, Ellie. But I read that all the time, just to keep things in perspective for me. It's a good reminder of the good and the bad because those letters would say, here's all the bad stuff he did. And here's all the cooperation. So it, it it's not a rosy picture, right? It, it's everything. And I want to tell you one thing that happened at that sentencing in New Jersey. I don't think I ever told you this. And it was, it never happened to me in any other sentencing. So we're waiting there in the courtroom, full courtroom, and someone, it must've been a clerk or a deputy for the judge, signals me, gives me the, come here. And I go sort of up, um, towards the bench and hang a left out into the, like the, the, not quite the chambers, but a little ante room. And the judge is there. And I don't know this judge. He's a New Jersey judge. I'm a New York prosecutor. And the judge goes to me, what do you want me to do here? And I said, I said, well, I said, well, we, we put in our letter where we don't make any specific recommendations. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got your letter. He goes, you want me to walk this guy or what? And I said, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, listen, I said, well, If you're asking, yeah, I do. And the judge said, okay, okay. Um, And so I went back into the crowd and uh, we went through the motions and, and you were sentenced to no additional jail time. So there you go. Wow. But Visconti's problems were far from over.
2: I don't know if you know this or not, Ellie, but it's the federal government's responsibility to hear something to tell you. Yep. So Angelo Pisco put a hit out on me, several of them. So one was with a guy that wore a wire on him in jail, and he wanted to have me killed. And he, the wire was, better be a tough guy because this guy's a tough guy, and just get it done. And then he hired an attorney, and the attorney was going to kill me. And he ended up getting sentenced himself. The guy in
0: New Jersey, do you know about that? Oh, um, Paul McGrit. Yeah, Paul was going to kill me. Oh my goodness. Well, he got, he got convicted of putting hits out on witnesses. Yes. So
2: there's always a young guy that wants to make a name for himself, but I'm still very cautious.
0: And uh, that's the way I run my life. So Michael, you know, from the start, as you said earlier, your, your family, your real family, not the Genovese family, your real family was your top motivation. What did you tell your kids? I mean, they were young back then, but what do you tell them now that they're older about this part of your life? It's That's
2: a tough one. You know, the youngest one really doesn't know much. The older one knows everything. And my middle one has seen stuff, googling and, you know, I guess I still look like a gangster, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Because they'll say, you know, your dad, you know, is he on The Sopranos? You you do have a look. Yeah, I have a look. So that comes up and- I didn't lie. I just said I made I made a bad choice in life, and you know that's what Daddy did, and this is what Daddy does. So I don't know. I, I don't know how they feel. I don't know how they feel. But you know, it is what it
0: is. I I don't know. That's a great question. And look, I know there's no easy answer. Let let me let me give you this hypothetical let's assume you'd never have gotten caught. You'd never have gone to jail. All right. Option A, I'm going to give you two options here. You're going to stay with Angelo. You're going to get made and you're going to live that life for the rest of your life. And option B is you flip and you, you live your life that you have now. What are you choosing?
2: My life now. Because I don't have to look over my shoulder.
1: Yeah.
2: And, I don't have to worry about making a graduation or play or game or dinner. I'm here. So in retrospect, I'm happy.
0: What you've done with your life and the way that you uh, really came clean and and did this the right way um, is something that I'm proud of and, and I'm proud of you for doing.
2: I I thank you. And, and, And honestly, when I say this, I was, I was a maybe for you until I started speaking that day. So I did this for all the right reasons, because I can tell you this, not all of us are animals. And I'm not saying I'm a better person or, you know, I'm above anyone else, their crimes. And I'm not saying that what I did was ever right, but I treat people the way I'm treated. And if you give me loyalty and respect, I'm going to give it back to you. And if, if, if I give it, I expect it. And I got all of that from you. Words really can't describe it unless you've been through it. You know, but there is hope after that. I can tell you that right now. It's, it's, it's good stuff. And let me tell whoever's listening out there, and this is the guy's honest truth. I'm still the same guy. I'm still 258 pounds. I'm 50 plus years old and I can still bench press over 400 pounds. I'm still a nasty, nasty guy physically. And if I get a a delusion in any way, shape or form about my family or me, you better bring your lunch because you're going to have a big problem. That's number one. And number two is walking into somebody's house with a gun, tying somebody up, smacking another wise guy around doesn't take balls. Getting on a stand and testifying takes more balls than anybody's ever gotten in their life.
0: It was remarkable to catch up with Visconti. It's not my business to stay in touch with cooperating witnesses and see how they do after the fact. But honestly, I do sometimes, and it's easier now that I'm not a prosecutor anymore. And I'll tell you, it doesn't always work out well for cooperators. Sometimes they fall back into crimes or other problems. Sometimes they struggle to reestablish themselves in the real world. It's not an easy adjustment. So when I reached out to Visconti about doing this interview... I was pleasantly surprised to learn how well he was doing on his own in his post-Mafia life, taking care of his family, his real family. Maybe more than any other cooperator I ever worked with, Visconti understands clearly that he's no saint, he did bad things in his life, no question, but he's also doing his best to make it right and to get his own life back on track. On the next episode of Up Against the Mob, we'll speak with famed mafia defense attorney Murray Richmond. For decades, Murray has been among the most respected and successful criminal defense lawyers in the country. A few years back, Murray and I even went head to head at a mob murder trial when I was an SDNY prosecutor. For a behind-the-scenes look at each episode of Up Against the Mob, become a member of Cafe Insider and catch me in conversation with Safina Meklai, who was a co-host of mine on the Third Degree podcast. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. And for a limited time, get 50% off the annual membership price with the special code MOB. That's special code MOB. O B mob. And you can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's it for this episode of up against the mob. Thanks again to my guest, Michael Visconti. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners to find the show. And as always, please send us your thoughts or questions to lettersatcafe.com. Up Against the Mob is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashur. Music is by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Matt Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer Staten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Special thanks to Nate White for his help with research. I'm Ellie Honig, and this is Up Against the Mob. I hope you enjoyed the premiere episode of Up Against the Mob. To catch our future episodes, follow us at Up Against the Mob wherever you get your podcasts.